This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Jeff Spurgeon, sitting in today for Naomi Lewin. Big changes appear to be in store for Avery Fisher Hall. The New York Times reported last week that the Lincoln Center venue will undergo a major renovation and redesign. It will require the New York Philharmonic to relocate for two seasons, but not before 2017. The orchestra says it wants to try and redefine the concert hall at a time of changing audience habits. So, what does Avery Fisher Hall need, and what risks does it face? To explore this question... We are joined by three guests. Justin Davidson, classical music and architecture critic of New York Magazine. Carol Joins, senior research fellow at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And Pete Matthews, editor of the blog Feast of Music. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you. Justin, Lincoln Center has renovated Avery Fisher Hall in the past, usually with the main goal of fixing the acoustics. What do you think about this latest announcement? Well, because they've renovated in the past, they're going to need to really start from scratch, gut the whole place, and transform it as best they can to something new. But they have to stay within the shell. So there are a lot of limitations, and that makes for a very, very challenging architectural project because this is a building that has four facades. It has a kind of architectural integrity that they're not going to want to violate. You can't really go out on any of the four facades, and you probably can't go down very far uh, because of the subway. And you don't want to go up by uh, really adding floors to the building because that's going to destroy the proportions of not just Avery Fisher Hall but all of Lincoln Center. You sound gingerly about it, and you're an architecture critic on the outside. It must be an incredibly gingerly project for those involved. You know, I'm encouraged by the fact that they really have done a very good job renovating Lincoln Center And there seems to be some good leadership there in terms of trying to figure out how much to intervene, uh, when to really sort of do something radical and when to pull back and do the minimum amount. And I think that something fairly radical needs to be done inside if you're going to do it because there really isn't any point in half measures now since so many half measures have been undertaken that we're up to like five and a half measures. So the interior needs to be radical, the exterior needs to stay the same, and I think they now have a good 10-year history of walking that line. The real question will be in the actual designs, which we haven't seen yet. There is an existing design by Norman Foster, which nobody has seen outside of the uh, Philharmonic Board of Trustees. Yeah. My understanding is that they're going back to the drawing board and they're going to throw it open to other architects, so we'll really have to see what they come up with. Carol Joins, you undertook a major study that looked at cultural building projects between 1994 and 2008 in the U.S., and you found that there was overinvestment by arts organizations that did not meet the demand they were expecting, and it put a lot of strain on those organizations. So taking a long view, does the Philharmonic have its head on straight when it says it wants to redo Avery Fisher Hall? Well, I think they're <clears throat> they're in a very interesting and also difficult position because if you talk about return on investment and there is the figure $300 million being um, used as a possible sum for uh, the complete cost of this, and given that our study found that performing arts centers went as high as 80% over budget, this one could easily end up, like many others, it just could end up at $400 million. If you think hard about what that return on investment will be, I think the hall really doesn't have a choice, in fact, about whether they do this, because, in fact, the New World Symphony building in Miami has 
basically changed the game, I think, entirely. It has moved with massive Internet capability, interactive ability that carries them all over the world to other universities, other capitals throughout the United States to 200 universities. They're able to give master classes, seminars, rehearsals, and symposia. In other words, if they don't do this, they're falling very far behind with a hall that is decades old. And all the things that Justin mentioned give them a very constricted physical parameter to work with. And the other thing that we found was that in addition to this enormous cost escalation risk over time is that the acoustics, which would be a critical part of this, are just extraordinarily difficult and extraordinarily iffy as to how they will actually turn out. And if you have a constricted site, that adds to adds to the difficulty. But I would say just in closing that that they are forced by enhancements but of old facilities and new facilities that have been successful. They really are not in a position to stand still and just keep it as is. So in other words, they've got to do it, but good luck doing it. Well, we wish them well, and we, <laughs> hope that, we hope that they look at our study and the many things that people ran into in the over $25 billion in infrastructure building that take, took place over that 15-year period. Fair enough. Pete Matthews, uh, the Philharmonic is interested, as all orchestras are these days, in reaching younger audiences, people such as you and perhaps your readers. How could a new hall do that? There's a hall in L.A. that has completely transformed the image of the orchestra there that was also designed by Frank Gehry. Disney Hall. Um, yeah, and absolutely, I think that's a demonstration of what can be done in the context of a new design and how that can actually transform an orchestra, both visually and orally, and it's done both. And also, to the point of the difficulty of working within a limited footprint, I was in Montreal over the summer, and at the, actually at the Jazz Festival, and got to experience the new concert hall up there, which they had to fit into a very narrow space. And I know it's been reviewed by the New York Times and other places as being a great hall, and in fact, it is a great hall. So I don't think it's impossible to build a great hall in a limited footprint, but I think if it's an open space that you can move through freely, that it feels accessible. And I do agree with Carol. I think if we can make technology part of that, that would be amazing. Um, but I, I think for being in the hall itself, you know, the way that Avery Fisher is set up right now, it's up and down stairs, everything is at right angles. You, you need to somehow, I know it's a right angle, it's a shoebox building, but you need to somehow build some curves into it when, when they do the renovation. And to me, that, that seems to be the most successful formula, that there are ramps, that there are curves, um, and that, that just makes the place feel more open. Pete Matthews, fan of curves, noted all right, uh, Justin Davidson, um, what else should happen at Avery Fisher Hall to make the patron experience better? Do you feel like, Pete, that, yeah, they need to sort of warm up the place um, shape-wise? You have to create a unity of experience, a kind of drama to the experience of going to a concert that begins from the moment you arrive, even really before you arrive. And I think that they can build on what Lincoln Center has done so far. You know, the circulation is a disaster right now. You come in, there are lines crossing the lobby. It's not clear which way you have to go. You have to fight through people to get to the box office, and you have to fight through other people to get online to get up the escalator. And then the doors are numbered in a way that if you're not familiar, you can't really find where you are. The bathrooms are invisible. So all of those things need to be straightened out. And you have to create an experience that feels like when you walk in, that's where you want to be 
for the next couple of hours. Then there's the auditorium, and I think there the challenge has been to create uh, a feeling of intimacy in a big space. Frank Gehry solved it very well at Disney Hall by using the vineyard style of arranging the, the seats, which means that you have sharply terraced seats, which improve sight lines. Um, this comes from Hans Scharoun's um, Philharmonie in Berlin um, from 1961, and that was really a, a landmark design. So I think they're almost certainly going to build on that. But to stay within the footprint, put some limitations on that. Carol and Pete, some concert halls are talking about and adding dedicated Twitter sections or places that allow for tables and chairs, for instance. When I think of a Twitter section in a concert, I recall the room in the church where I grew up where I was occasionally taken by my mother as a very small child. It was a glassed-in balcony, which was referred to as the cry room. And that's when I think of people Twittering at concerts, that comes to mind. But should efforts like this be really serious in thinking about the redesign of Avery Fisher Hall? I understand the need to try to appeal to a wide as possible audience, and I also understand how much people under 40, under 30 use Twitter at, you know, when you're going to concerts, rock concerts, whatever. The classical music experience is not a rock concert. It, it is a hushed space. You're supposed to be sitting there paying attention to what's happening on stage. It's a very different experience. I, I don't really understand what the benefit is. And <laughs> I, my assumption, too, is that they're probably stuck in the back, so it's not exactly the best experience for the people tweeting. Well, so. I think, Carol, you have uh, some knowledge about an experiment that's been tried. Is it in Los Angeles where that's been done? Uh, at the L.A. Music Center, Thor Steingraber, the um, programming director and VP there, said that they are just going ahead and doing it because they know that they're going to lose audience if they don't. Of course, it takes on the form of uh, condemning people into a small room as in some airports to smoke. <laughs> and you're, but, but the idea is to keep the flashing lights and the clatter of tiny keyboards away from people that actually just want to listen to the music. But mm -hmm. I think it, what we're seeing is the same thing in museums. I think the major issue here is that people are accessing culture in an evolving set of ways. And that evolution is taking place very quickly. If you look at what you can do for a 25 euro subscription and a b good pair of headphones and get on the Berlin Philharmonic website, you can see live performances, you can see a huge archive uh, or listen to a huge archive of older performances. You go into a museum and you see how younger people are using their iPhones. I do not think this is temporary. I think it is part of an evolving trend. I think that the institutions are responding because they're acknowledging that there are a sufficient volume of people that are used to having more control over how they interact than audiences that are, like you described, taken up into the cry room with the glass wall in the church. This is Conducting Business on WQXR. We're talking with Justin Davidson, classical music and architecture critic of New York Magazine, with Carol Joyne, senior research fellow at the Cultural Policy Center at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and with Pete Matthews, editor of the blog Feast of Music. We're talking about uh, the new Avery Fisher Hall that we have heard is coming in a few years. A couple of other uh, quick items about uh, the way the place is laid out. David from Flushing writes on WQXR's website that part of the problems of Lincoln Center are due to management decisions to use lobby space for revenue-producing eateries, etc., David says this reminds him of the sad period when the concourse of Grand Central Terminal was given over to commercial booths. I wanted to know about your reactions to the space that is outside the hall, but still within Avery Fisher. And Carol, too, you might weigh in on this about the cost, the benefits, and 
possible vulnerabilities that an organization adds to itself when it starts to sell things inside its performance spaces. I think one major issue is revenue streams. If you take the statistics from the National Endowment from the Arts, the trending has been down from 1982 down to 2012 from about 13% of the population being interested enough to go to classical performances and it's now down it went down to 9.3% in 2008. It's projected to be down further. So you've got a situation where you've got a steadily smaller audience. It may be that New York and Avery Fisher Hall is in a unique position, but there is an expectation now that you go in for a full experience. And the experience has got to start just outside the hall, then your experience inside the hall. And if you would like a drink or something or to go sit and relax and talk to people a little bit, and the it may be that an austere, empty foyer is not the uh, ticket anymore. The organizations are working extremely hard in their separate communities trying to figure out what their audience in their region and their city really wants. The executive director and the board of trustees need to also consider their income streams from these because one way or the other, they have to cover their costs for the year. And if those income streams from concessions out in the hall, if they're done well, can actually significantly help the bottom line. Justin, you had some thoughts on this too, uh, as a regular patron of programs at Avery Fisher Hall. Well, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong. In fact, um, I think it's necessary to have places to get a cup of coffee and, you know, f- food during intermission and before the concert. And, you know, I think those things actually need to be diversified and better thought out. You need to have those things. They just need to be better done. But I think that um, one of the things we're dancing around is what the hall is actually for. We have to remember this is not just for the New York Philharmonic. It is operated by Lincoln Center as well. So there are many different kinds of concerts that take place. Some of them are classical orchestra concerts, piano recitals. Many of them include and will have to include amplification and different kinds of styles. They include video, theatrical um, performances. So you need a lot of capability to do all of those things. Some are trade-offs. I think that in the 60s and 70s we saw a real growth in multi-use halls, which were supposed to be kind of all-purpose everything halls, and the programming reflects that. It's very difficult to build a hall that is really an ideal orchestral performance hall for classical music that is also ideal for amplified music. Just acoustically, those things are that trade-off is very difficult. And so I think one of the things we're going to have to look at in terms of the decisions that they make is what they're going to privilege or which things are going to be important. All those things need to be there. You need to have video capability at different sizes. You need to now have some theatrical lighting. You know, even the New York Philharmonic is staging operas on that stage. The Philharmonia Orchestra just did Wozzeck and the actors, you know, it's not just you get up and stand there and sing a concert opera anymore. You're moving around the stage and the singers were confined to the lip of the stage. So all those things need to be taken into account. And that kind of flexibility is really going to be at the core of the conceptualizing and design of the new hall. I was just in Las Vegas at the new Smith Center that opened in March. That is a $460 million structure. 
And they were talking while we were there. We went to a performance, and they were underlining exactly what Justin is saying. They want maximum flexibility, but what happened is that when Joshua Bell and other classical music performances were taking place, the box seats were turned into total dead zones from an acoustical standpoint and they were mystified because they spent an enormous amount of money an enormous amount of time trying to get it right but getting it right for something that is flexible and allows for everything from an opera performance to a violin solo is extremely difficult from um, an acoustical standpoint. Let's add one more wrinkle into that then, too, and a nod to an earlier tradition in great concert halls and something that has never been at Avery Fisher Hall, and uh, that is a pipe organ. And there have been calls for it over the years. Court Mazur was working hard for a while to to get one uh, funded there. There was the installation problem, but he wanted that in a new Avery Fisher Hall, too. Um, How important is that? There aren't that many works that call for a pipe organ in a concert hall, and yet it's part of the tradition. Justin, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that if you're really going to build a state-of-the-art concert hall and you're starting essentially from scratch within the envelope, that you absolutely have to put in a pipe organ. It's true that it's not that huge a part of the repertoire, but it expands the repertoire. It makes it possible for composers to think that way for new pieces. It it brings in pieces that have not really had successful performances at Avery Fisher Hall but now could. Uh, it opens up you know, organ recitals and church music of different kinds. I mean, it's I think it's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, referencing Disney Hall, anybody that's ever been at that hall, you cannot take your eyes off of that amazing French fry stack of (laughs) of pipes that juts out in all directions. And I think the visual impact of a pipe organ is just as important as as its ability to expand the repertoire. It it adds to the entire majesty of what you're, you're experiencing. All right, so we've added that to the mix here. So now let's talk about where things have lain before and, and how we'll go forward. Uh, Justin Davidson mentioned Norman Foster has already done a big project ready to go for Avery Fisher Hall, and now it has been quietly set aside. Justin, do you have any idea what has happened with this design, why it didn't work? Maybe technology just overtook it. I suspect that what happened was that they had the experience of renovating the rest of Lincoln Center. And, you know, the people at Lincoln Center and at the Philharmonic have a lot more to draw on and to build on. One of the more successful aspects of the renovation was the renovation of Alice Tully Hall, which was really a very unsuccessful hall. And the architects, um, Taylor Scafidio and Renfro, who were responsible for the renovation of all of Lincoln Center, managed to turn that into a really acoustically successful and warm and inviting and beautiful hall with very minimal intervention. So I think that, and I'm speculating here, that they're maybe looking for a somewhat different approach, an attitude that is perhaps more respectful of the Lincoln Center that is already there rather than a design that is sort of trying to bust out of that envelope. If you look at things that um, Norman Foster has done elsewhere at the British Museum in London or the um, Hearst Tower here in New York, he's used the existing historical structures and then kind of imposed a really radically new, modern, steel and glass kind of aesthetic on top of that, often very successfully. I mean, I think that firm, is they do fabulous work. Whether that's what's called for here, or I think they want more ideas. Than what they have. Than what they have. You're, you're talking about different leadership 
at the Philharmonic than was present at the time that they um, gave that job to Foster. Carol joins at Lincoln Center. Besides building a hall for the New York Philharmonic, you also, as mm-hmm. Justin mentioned, have to work this into the whole Lincoln Center larger picture. So you have some other organizations that have some say here. How can you get everybody on the same page and anticipate the possibility of cost overruns? You've got a big challenge on your hands. I'm sure that they're looking over their shoulder at the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia. What went wrong there? A very, very expensive hall and basically ignoring... Uh, but remember, I come from Illinois, where we currently have $85 billion in unfunded pensions in our state. They were not looking at the clearly and carefully at the condition of the orchestra for the longer term and the conditions economically about how they would support an extraordinarily beautiful and extremely large hall for the long term and couple the two organizations together in a good working relationship. And it all basically came seriously unraveled. So I cannot underscore enough how it both takes an enormous amount of focus over a very sustained period. And it really requires a consistency of leadership because one of the key reasons these projects go off the rails is when there is a change in board leadership or a change of executive director or even an artistic director. If it disrupts the process, it can send the entire enterprise into sometimes a fairly dark place. I would agree that um, as important as the choice of architect and as the art, you know talent of the architects is the clarity of the client's needs yes, and how those absolutely. things are expressed. You know, an architect can only fulfill needs and desires if those desires and priorities are made absolutely clear. And I think we have the possibility of doing that. We've got, you know, a new executive director. There, Alan Gilbert, as music director, has been in the job a few years and is, you know, willing to take that on. You have to have people who are doing that enthusiastically, which I think is why it's happening now and didn't have happen a few years ago. One thing I would sort of hope for is I think that one key element of the success of the renovation of Lincoln Center thus far, uh, leadership of Reynold Levy as president of Lincoln Center. He is retiring, and I would hope that they would call him out of retirement, (laughs) uh, although I'm sure reluctantly to oversee the fundraising to kind of be uh, a coordinator. Lincoln Center is an incredibly Byzantine uh, collection of different interest groups and conflicting agendas. And somebody like him has the experience to guide this process through the that thicket. Pete Matthews, I wanted to ask you, because on your blog you deal not only with classical music, but with rock and roll music, too. And I wonder, is there anything from your experience in both of those sort of cultural extremes? Can the rock concert presentation experience in any way inform what should happen at Avery Fisher Hall? That's a tough one. I mean, they are very different experiences. I mean, I've always thought about what could classical and rock music take from each other. You know, I think, you know, we talk about amplification, lighting, the ability to build a sort of sense of anticipation about what's going to happen. But, you know, they're very different. They're very different experiences, as we talked about earlier. So I I, I would fall short of saying we should just transplant one or or graft one experience upon the other. They, They are very different. Uh, we shouldn't leave this discussion, and, and Justin, you brought it up earlier, Justin Davidson, uh, the subject of acoustics. It's just a crapshoot, right? I mean, it's a scientifically based crapshoot to get the acoustics right. Justin Davidson? 
I would say it's not a perfect science, but it's not a crapshoot either. I mean, you're not just rolling the dice. There are a lot of things you can know. There are a lot of trade-offs that you can choose to make uh, consciously. And a lot of times I think that what comes out in the wash is the product of value engineering that cuts out some really important elements that you know, you're just saving money on conflicting agendas where you're trying to make something that is really good for amplification that's going to um, have an impact on the way unamplified music sounds. So some of that, I think, is is the product of choices. Having said that, clearly there are some unknowns. I think a lot of the computer modeling is actually quite impressive. I've been to IRUP's uh, little booth where they do a, a computerized simulation of different halls, and the, the effects that they can produce are really remarkable. There are people who do know how to do this. But, yeah, there is definitely a level of uncertainty, and when you're talking about $300 million and you know uh, gutting an important building, uh, you do want to get it right, and there are no guarantees. Thanks to our panelists for outlining some of the challenges faced by the people who are planning, uh, taking up the task of making a new Avery Fisher Hall, a new home for the New York Philharmonic, and a new part in an old shell of Lincoln Center. Our guests today on Conducting Business, New York Magazine critic Justin Davidson, University of Chicago researcher Carol Joins, and blogger from the Feast of Music, Pete Matthews. Brian Wise is our producer. George Wellington is our engineer, sitting in for Naomi Lewin today. I'm Jeff Spurgeon. Thank you for listening.